each and every day we get upon this earth is soaked with meaning and purpose. The challenge is we get so used to the routine, so lulled by the mundane, our days start to blend together and fade with familiarity. If we're not careful, we can look back and realize we've wasted what we've been given. But if we could begin to understand the brevity of this life, the eternal implications of how we live now, we can start to live our lives with deeper purpose and urgency. Each day becomes a possibility for purpose. Each moment becomes an opportunity for meaning. The book of James calls us to live out this brief moment we've been given upon this earth with wisdom, with urgency, with significance. It beckons you, don't waste your life. Continuing in our series, looking, going through the book of James, uh, looking at this idea of don't waste your life. And one of the things I want to say at the beginning is I've had more people, maybe than ever, uh, come up to me the last you know, couple months of we've been working through this series, and they just kind of come up with this look, and they're like, you've been reading my mail, haven't you? And like, today, what you preached was exactly what I needed to hear. And here's what I want to say. Um, it's not my preaching. It's God's word. It, God's word speaks to us in this powerful way. And, and here's what I want to encourage you with. Um, because so often we'll read something or hear something and be like, oh, man, so-and-so needs to hear this, right? Okay? And we sometimes approach the Bible or sermons um, through a magnifying glass or a, a microscope in which we look at other people's lives. And when you walk away from something um, and you feel convicted and you feel like God is speaking directly to you, I need you to know it's because he is. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And this is the beauty of the Bible, is somehow through time and space, God is able to speak directly to some of the circumstances and situations we are facing right now even though this letter was penned thousands of years ago. Um, and that is the beauty of the Holy Spirit. Um, today, it will probably be pretty irrelevant to most of us. We're going to be talking about conflict. Um, and so James just, he just goes after it. And I want to look at this idea. We've been talking about not wasting our lives. And, and I want us to look at this idea of don't waste your life in conflict. Um, don't be so overwhelmed by tension and turmoil, so caught off guard by it. Um, that your life is wasted away, pointing at other people as the problem, pointed at other people as the issue with our world, and, and just sitting in bitterness. This is, James comes pretty hard here in James uh, chapter 4. So let's pick it up in verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So clearly there's something happening here. As James is writing this to these early Christians, that there is quarrels and there is fighting and there is just bitterness. Can, can I tell you one of my, the most encouraging things as I read the Bible um, so often I realized they were dealing with the same problems that we are. 
They face some of the same struggles and, and trials and troubles. There's fighting and quarrels and selfishness and deceit, political wars, there's racial tension, there's sexual brokenness, there's murder, there's hate, there's, hate, there's deception. That's because these are real letters written to real people with real problems. It's not some ethereal idea. No, he's addressing the church. And it's funny when people come up and they'll say something like, man, I just want a New Testament church. They just gather together daily. They sold everything and shared it. They just sat under the apostles' teaching and wonder. And I'm like, bro, that lasted like a verse. <laughs> Do you realize why the rest of the New Testament was written? Because these churches were broken, man. They were messed up. Paul would go plant a church and they would be like, oh, Jesus is amazing. And then he'd leave and then he'd get a report and he's like, oh, I guess I'm writing 2 Corinthians now. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and see, listen, humanity, it's broken and will be until Jesus comes back. And so we should not be shocked when we see brokenness. We should not be caught off guard when people let us down or hurt or disappoint us. We live in a broken world. In fact, Jesus said, you in this world, you will have many troubles. You will have many troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And as we come to this epistle of James, he's saying, yes, there's turmoil and pain and fighting and strife, but we as followers of Jesus, we need to be a church to live a life that looks different than the world around us because we look at it through a gospel lens. And as we approach this idea of conflict, we actually need to start by seeing those we are in conflict with, um, not as the enemy to win against, but as broken human beings in need of a savior just as much as we are. Because we get in conflicts, don't we? And that person is a monster, are they not? Like, you can't even imagine them doing anything good, right? Like, if you, like, drove past them and they were, like, pushing their kid on the swing at a park, you'd be like, they're probably going to push them off, you know, right? <laughs> you, you, you can't see their humanity. In, in 1931, one of the greatest, um, you know, horror films ever came out it was Frankenstein, Okay. And so uh, here, here's, a picture, uh, here, here's a picture of Frankenstein. And uh, for us, we see it and we kind of we laugh or whatever. But like, you have to understand, nearly 100 years ago, this was like revolutionary when Frankenstein came out. The, the, the movies were just on the cusp of things. And Frankenstein, they would spend hours putting on his makeup and his prosthetics. So much so that when people first saw the movie, there's reports of people fainting when he came on the screen. People would scream and run out. There's entire countries that banned this movie. It was so terrifying because people had never seen anything like that until one of the pictures of Frankenstein came out. And you actually see a little bit of the behind the scenes. And this is, uh, this is Boris Karloff. And uh, this is in between sets. And uh, he's just having a cup of tea. And apparently, his chest hair is symbolizing Batman's coming out soon. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know you guys all woke up this morning like, I want to see Frankenstein's nipples today. That's, I, check. Um, I don't know why I just said that. <laughs> but what happened is when this image came out, they realized, 
oh, it's not really a monster. It's actually a human. Even if you knew it, you, you were confronted with the humanity. And I think what the Bible does is it allows us to see the hurting human behind the hurtful monster of our conflicts that we face. Miroslav Volv, he put it like this. He said, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. And, and we make it good and evil between human beings. And here's the shocking, painful, gasp-inducing news that James is reminding of, us of, um, that you're broken too. See, the brokenness of our world, it, it lies within. This is where we have to start within conflict. We can demand reform. We can call out for resignations. We can tell others they must repent. We can say, we need change until we're blue in the face. But in order to see the change that we long for in the world, we have to start with a brokenness within ourselves. Now, what James is not saying is, he's not saying there's not hurtful people out there. He's not saying there's, there are not those who do evil wrong, vile things. He's not saying that if you are being abused or manipulated or harmed or trapped, that you just need to work on yourself and it'll all be okay. No, um, that actually is really a, a harmful perspective. And, and if you are in a relationship in a cycle of that, um, listen to me, you need to get out. That cycle needs to break. You need help. And what you're facing, um, I don't want you to read a passage like this and and if you're being harmed and abused and manipulated and, be, and think that it's your fault in some way, shape, or form, it is not. Um, you are experiencing the fallen brokenness of the world. But what James is telling us is that so often in conflict, where we start is we look at other people as the reason for the conflict we're facing. And James says the first thing we need is not a magnifying glass. We need a mirror. We need to look at ourselves. The problem is not out there. I'm the problem. Uh, Rembrandt is one of the most famous painters um, ever. Here's a few of his paintings. They're just, they're just awe-inducing. They're, they're breathtaking. Um, this is one of his paintings of a ship. It, this was in the 1600s he painted this. He was revolutionary in his painting. One, one of my favorites um, is actually the painting of the prodigal son. And you see this embrace of the father as the son comes back. And in fact, this, this is such a powerful painting. Um, uh, one of the, a priest named Henry Nowen actually wrote an entire book called Re The Return of the Prodigal Son. And he has a flap to it where the painting is on it. So as you're reading the book, every time you turn the page, he wants you to keep this painting uh, in front of you. Uh, but the one I want to draw attention to today is his painting of the crucifixion. Because one of the things that Rembrandt did was oftentimes um, he would actually paint himself in the back of his paintings. But at the crucifixion, he didn't paint himself hidden in the back. Um, if you zoom in, you actually see he painted himself holding this cross. As this powerful picture and understanding that it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. See, this is what James is saying. We have to look and self-reflect and say, no, I, the brokenness starts here. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? It, it starts within. 
at its core, the conflict we experience in the world, it, it is spiritual problems that start with our sinful flesh. The words he uses here in this passage, passion, desire, covet, these are spiritual emotional words. And because the problems begin with spiritual and emotional wounds we've suffered. And so because of that, the way of the world is not the solution. That's not how we respond. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The way of the world is not the solution. The solution to your deepest wound and greatest need does not lie within a fallen world. We cannot look at the world around us. The world is not your medic. It's your mission. It's not your cure. Uh, it's your calling. It's not our solution. The world is who we're called to serve. And here's the great irony, that to love, we must forsake. In order to love the world, we actually have to forsake the world. And what I mean by that is in order to love the people of the world, we have to forsake the ways of the world. We, we have to walk in this and love them deeply. Because, you know, it's easy to read this and be like, wait a minute, this feels way off. This feels like, this feels like a miss because for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yeah, God so loved the people of the world. And if we are to love the people of the world, we have to forsake the ways of the world. If you wanna offer hope and love and redemption to those hurting around you, you have to live in a way that differs from the world around you. And everywhere we turn, we, we face the fallenness, don't we? we? We experience it. What are you experiencing right now? What are you seeing around you, either personally or in people's lives around you? Loneliness, purposelessness, oppression, political animosity, racism, abuse, addiction, sickness, death. What are the world's solutions to these things? Just think about it for a second. How does the world say we respond in the midst of conflict? Well, we just, man, we just need more politics, right? You, like, are, is anybody else dreading 2024 already? You're like, because it seems like every two years, every four years, we're like, okay, you know what? It's never worked before, but this time, as long as this person or this party gets in the office, that's going to be the solution. Or, or, or what other solutions? Man, you just, no, you just need more medication. You just need more pills. Or maybe you just need more partying. Maybe you just need to get rich and get off the grid. That's what you need to do. Isolate. Is it cancel culture? Man, if we just canceled this person. Is it gossip? Or in the church, not gossip, prayer requests, you know, right? Yeah. yeah. You hear about Nancy this week? I got a prayer request for you, right? You know? This is us approaching spiritual problems with the world's solutions. But spiritual problems don't have worldly solutions. They don't. The world has no permanent solution to the deep, aching wounds of the soul, just band-aids that may temporarily stop the bleeding. Uh, a few years ago, we had this cat that was like this huntress, and we'd go out and it would uh, catch all kinds of like creatures and animals. And um, those of you guys who know my son know my son loves animals, so he wouldn't find these 
dead, wounded animals and be like, oh, the cat got it, yay. He'd be like, we have to, we need to perform minor surgery right now, right? I, I walked out one day and uh, the cat got a snake, which I'm like, you're the best cat in the world, right? And this snake was just like cut open, like literally like, not to be too graphic, but its guts were like hanging out, you know? And, and Dax was like, we, we have to, he was like five or six at the time, we have to help it, right? And so I'm like, this snake's gonna die, dude. And I walk outside and he's holding the snake, and, 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 and this is the picture I took of him, of him holding the snake, right? <laughs> Little six-year-old Dax goes in, and he gets a Band-Aid, and he covers up the snake. And that snake died, okay? <laughs> that snake died, okay? He, like, Crocodile Hunter was not, like, the wounded warrior. He, he did not... He was not Dr. Quinn medicine woman. He could not fix that snake. But he did the best that he could, right? He put a Band-Aid. That's all he, Band-Aid is the solution for everything as a kid, right? A kid gets a tummy ache, I just need a Band-Aid, right? They get a cut. And he goes inside and he gets this Band-Aid. Like, this is the world's external solutions to our spiritual problems. And they fall short every time. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Turning to the world's solutions is a rejection of God as Savior. This is what James is saying here. It, it seems a little harsh, right? Like, like we're talking about conflict and we're talking about these internal struggles we have, and he says, you adulterous people. It feels harsh. I remember um, I was in my early 20s, and I was uh, doing web and graphic design, and I would go meet with my clients kind of all throughout the city of Portland, and we'd meet at a coffee shop and spend time, and spend time getting to know them. And, and I remember this one guy in particular, Wade, and I sat down with Wade, and we were talking about his organization and how he got a part of it, and I was just asking him his story. And uh, the more I asked, he finally, at one point, he's like, all right, you want to be real? Um, he, he goes, this has been the most painful year of my life. And he goes on to explain how after 15 years of marriage, his wife had uh, committed adultery against him. And he found out, and he's been walking that road. And I'm, I mean, I'm 22, 23 at the time. And he gets done explaining, and I just, I just look at him, and I'm like, wait, that that must be incredibly painful. And he looks at me and he says, it is, and it has been, but not for the reason you might suspect. He says, the deepest pain from this last year has been, because of this, it's been the first moment where I began to understand my betrayal of God and how much I have wounded God. And again, this can sound like really harsh. We're like, well, that's a bit extreme, yet... In the Old Testament, there's a man named Hosea, and Hosea was a prophet. We like to think of prophets as um, people who foretell the future, and th there's times where they do do that in Scripture, and you see prophetic language about the future. But more than anything, a prophet was a mouthpiece of God, um, called to say the hard things to God's people. And Hosea was called to go and marry a prostitute, and he does. And he marries her, and they have children together. They have multiple children together. And then 
she returns to her life, her previous life, sleeping around with all these other men for money. And God looks at Jose and he says, go and get her back. Love her, pursue her. This is what he says in Hosea 3. Go again, love the woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. It's this, Hosea's life was this metaphor for God's relationship with his people He says, though you turn to other gods, though you commit adultery, though you turn against me over and over and over, I am going to pursue you. This is who he is. This is how much he loves us. And so as we come to this passage, it's easy to stop and be like, man, why does James focus so harshly on our sin and our betrayal of God when we turn to the world. Can't we just talk about the good things and the, the joy and the celebration and the gospel? It's because in becoming aware of our brokenness that we become clear on God's incredible love. We, we have, to, the gospel has to come in two waves. And the first wave of the gospel is that you are more sinful and broken than you ever dared to believe. This is the first wave of the gospel. There is brokenness. Here's the second one. You are more loved in Jesus than you ever dared to hope. When all is broken, we are are called to turn to our true love, God. It says, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? God has put your soul within you. He's put his spirit within you. And he loves us so much that he jealously longs for us. And think about that phrase. The God of the universe jealously longs for our worship, jealously longs for our praise. The God who created the earth and the moon jealously longs for our gaze. The God who holds the universe in his hands jealously longs for our trust. The God who created the melodies of songbirds and the crashing waves of the ocean jealously longs for the worship of your lips. This is who God is. And it's not because he needs you. It's because he loves you. I heard it said once, and I think it's so true, the most loving thing that a perfectly loving being could do is create a creation to pour that love into. God created us for the praise of his glory, that we would experience his love and his grace and his goodness and have this relationship with him. And how do we know this? We look at this next line. It says, but he gives more grace. How refreshing is that? He's going sin, sin, brokenness, sin, you adulterers, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God gives more grace. Man, would that just be on, when you are confronted with your brokenness, when you are confronted with your failures, where you fall short, would you just over and over, would this just be a mantra in your heart, God gives more grace. Yeah, but I have a lot of sin. Yeah, guess what? God gives more. 
more grace, more patience, more love. Um, I have uh, this thing I really hate about myself. Um, it's called defensiveness, okay? And uh, what happens is somebody does something or says something to me, and um, whether they mean it this way or not, I get really offended by it. it it's like really insulting. And like if they didn't mean it to be insulting, I'm almost more frustrated that they're not aware of how insulting it is, okay? Um, and so I feel insulted, and so I have this way of like putting it back on the other person. Um, it comes up with strangers. It comes up when I'm driving for some reason. Could be uh, servers, people working in a restaurant. Could be my kids. Thankfully, it's never come up in my marriage. I had a moment in my marriage where my wife made a comment that I felt defensive. It was a comment about something I was wearing and I felt defensive about it and my response was to bring up her credit card spending. <laughs> half of you laughed and half of you were like, that was too personal, right? <laughs> Oof, yeah, like everyone is gonna go to the back for prayer afterwards for me. <laughs> and I say a time in our marriage because I don't want to admit it was about three weeks ago. <laughs> and but if I'm honest like this part of me like I hate it's hurtful to people I love and it's embarrassing like I feel really secure in who I am I feel confident in what God's called me to be and then I have these moments of defensiveness and the way I respond it, it's hurtful and it's embarrassing. It makes me question myself and my leadership and my friendship and my roles in life. And here's what I know is you have these things too. For some of you, you are like me, and it's defensiveness. For others, it's anger. For others, it's gossip or selfishness or addiction. And this is what James, James is going through, and he's kind of like pulling all these things out. He's making this list. He's drawing us aware. And you know what we all need? We need more grace. That's what we need. We need God's grace. But I, I need you to understand from this passage what grace is. It's not some kind of form of cosmic enablement. God's grace is spiritual transformation. He doesn't just say, oh, it's okay, it's no big deal. He says, no, I love you just the way you are, but I love you too much to leave you that way. And so you're gonna get my grace, and I'm gonna bring about transformation. And so when you feel guilty over how you fall short, as a husband, a wife, a parent, a girlfriend, a child, would this just be in your heart, God gives more grace? Is your anger boiling over to the point where you say and do things that you find yourself embarrassed of? What you need is you need more grace. Do you have addictions that become vices that you cope with in the idleness and futility of life? God gives more grace. And more and more, you just may be saying, I have so much sin. And the answer is, yes, you do. But you know what there's more of? God has more grace. This is what we need. And maybe we even need this reminder, not just for ourselves. Maybe we need this reminder for those around us, when they're hurting us, when we feel like people are saying too much. Um, we need to remind ourselves, now God gives more grace and he has more grace for me, and he has more grace for them. When you don't 
appreciate how people are acting or what they're doing, God gives more grace. See, Miroslav Volf, that quote I shared earlier about excluding ourselves from the realm of sinners, he continues on and he says, when one knows that God's love and grace is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself in light of God's justice and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. We don't have to feel embarrassed or ashamed we, have to, we can acknowledge, yes, I am sinful, and you know what I need? I need to humble myself before a righteous God. It's not, I need to fix this or I need to do better. No, I need to humble myself. Look at these words used here by James. Submission, resistance, drawing near, cleansing, weeping, mourning. What are all these words? These are the words of someone who has finally come to the end of their pride and has embraced humility and surrender. And what does God meet them with? It's not shame, it's grace. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this passage, verse, verse nine, look at it right here. It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I'm selling that coffee mug in the lobby, right? <laughs> it, you ever come across this? Like nobody has this verse highlighted in their Bible. If you do, come find me afterwards, okay? And I will pray for you, right? <laughs> why, would James, why would James say this? Like this is literally the worst verse in all of Scripture if it's taken out of context. But you know what the context of all of the letter of James is? James is like a commentary, a response, uh, a put this into practice of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And so the only way to actually understand the writings of James is to also understand that Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. There's dozens of references to it, and this is actually one of them. And what does Jesus say? about those who weep and mourn, he says they are blessed. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, the prideful are their only solution. They are their own own solution, but the humble are met with the grace of Jesus. If we would humble ourselves, and so James, he's saying, I would rather weep and mourn in the arms of Jesus than laugh and cheer outside of his presence. Because any answer outside of Jesus, it's only temporary. But with Christ and his grace, gloom and tears and mourning and shame, that is what becomes temporary. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is what we need. Jesus is our only hope. And if we humble ourselves, rather than trying to fix ourselves, Rather than say, no, I'm right, they're wrong. The reason for this conflict is what they did to me. What if you allowed scripture to be a mirror? And we said, man, how am I broken in this situation? How is my inadequacies, my defensiveness, my selfishness coming out in this situation? What happens is God doesn't show up and be like, ha, uh, you admit it, you're wrong, get out of here. He shows up and he says, yeah, grace. It, it tells us in this confusion and pain what we're supposed to do, that we're actually supposed to draw near to God. It says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a beautiful, this is a, this is a promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He promises this. And this is where we find grace. And we realize 
that grace is what our souls long for. Grace is everything. When grace appears, we receive a glorious victory and a path to overwhelming joy, a road that is filled with hope. And we realize, man, actually, yes, I'm broken, but I'm loved. Yes, I have flaws, but, but God is not done with me. See, when James is, it's so interesting as he's writing this section because he goes through and he creates this list highlighting our brokenness. You're like, James, like that is gnarly. And this is why you always have to read scripture in context because he's going through, going through, man, you know what causes, you know what the source of all these issues is? It's your selfishness. It's the passions within you. You're not getting what you want. You're coveting every, every, all these other people. But if you would humble yourself, what do you see? If you would draw near to God, what are you going to experience? You're going to experience his grace. And right in the middle of this passage, we just see that there's more of it. Because we are created to run off of it. C.S. Lewis, he put it like this, just absolutely brilliantly. He said, God made us, invented us, as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol what we in the colonies called gasoline, okay? <laughs> and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. This is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. And he's using the term religion positively here. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. You guys, the grace and the love of God is the fuel you were created to love on, to run on, to function on, to live on. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will work. Nothing else will satisfy. And so humble yourself and he will exalt you. What do we do when we're confronted with our brokenness and our shortcomings? Would we humble ourselves before the Lord and allow him to lift us up? This last week, my family went up to Lost Lake and we were hiking around the lake and we were getting near the end and Noah was kind of getting a little tired and, and um, she's seven now and she's getting bigger and I, I was having these reminiscent moment, memories of when she was like a little girl and I'd just pick her up and put her on my shoulders, right? And so uh, I just grabbed her and picked her up and put her on my shoulders and uh, I've scheduled a chiropractic appointment for this week, but <laughs> it was a moment, right? And I just, we're just having fun and I'm literally, I kid you not, like I'm having flashbacks, to those moments when she was three or four. And she always wanted to be on daddy's shoulders. And she was, she was terrible about it, though. She never knew how to get up. She would just start, like, climbing me, right, in the most awkward way possible, like, scratching my back. And I'm like, no, no. And I would have to tell her, Nova, Nova, I want you on my shoulders, but, but I need you to face the way I'm facing, okay? Let's look the same direction. And then you just relax, and let daddy pick you up. And I'd pick her up and put her on my shoulders. And she loved it up there. Why? Because she was safe. She was disconnected. Nothing could get her. Like all the creatures that her brother would bring around. Like, no, she was safe. And I remember one time she just goes, Dad, you know why I love it up here? And I go, why, baby? 
She goes, because I get to see the world the way you see it. <laughs> and I'm like, you are precious to me. <laughs> and what James is saying in this passage, when he says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you, it means that as we come to him and admit our shame and admit where we've fallen short, it's not so that he can make us feel guilty or cry or run scared and crawl back to him. His intention is to help us triumph over all that is messy and hurtful and broken in our lives and just pick us up and put us on his shoulders that we could see the world the way he does, that we could be safe in his arms. It literally says he will lift you. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. He wants to just take a victory lap with us as his magnificent, as he is our magnificent father. And his heart just shouts joyfully over the conquest of this moment. And so when we're in the middle of conflict and brokenness, stop worrying about the world around you and saying, oh man, if the world's solutions, stop trying them and maybe try God's and try humbling yourself before the Lord and saying, you know what, I got some shortcomings. I got some guilt to admit in this situation myself. And what you'll find is as you draw near to God on your knees, he will exalt you upon his shoulders. And so James, he just ends this section talking about quarrels. And he says, so do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And essentially what he's saying is in light of all that Jesus has done for you, all that Jesus has done for your sister in Christ, all that Jesus has done for your brother in Christ, are you seriously going to be the voice that tears them down? If God has more grace, when we finally allow the Father to lift us up, to exalt us, then we are able to see the world the way that he does and then maybe fully surrender to Jesus and his work. And we will, he will humble us enough to walk in unity, grace, and kindness to the world.